Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How you doing? This was a um, a better week, maybe? Ish? (laughs) Uh, Doesn't everything look the same? (laughs) Isn't it just like the same thing? I'm really starting to get a bit sad around how much the things are the same in my day-to-day life. I mean, yeah, I cannot really believe that it's the end of July already. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the the days bleeding into one another really does make time very confusing. It is it is hard for me uh, to really judge because I, as I said, this was a better week. I was like, no, wait, Sandy, people were arrested. And then I was like, wait, that was last week. We talked about that. <laughs> Just like, actually, the podcast, as somebody tweeted at us, the podcast helps me delineate time because otherwise I don't really have another way to parse it out. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I get that. I'm also feeling the sadness of that. And it was just announced that my entire semester um, of school in the fall will be online, which, you know, a lot of us expected. I was, as an international student, was going to take a class that had an in-class component anyway, just in case, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security was like, get out of here again. Uh, So I I was expecting to have somewhere to go in the fall. Uh, But that's that's gone now, so I will be back inside. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. I mean, I the the way that students have been caught up in the in the pandemic has been gross, I would say. Uh, And so I really hope that things work out for you and for everyone else. And I mean, I was reading uh, the Globe Mail today and uh, American students trying to come to Canada, they're kind of in a in a different version of that, which is they're not being allowed into Canada. And so they don't know if they can go back to school or not. But I mean, if classes are online, I don't, (laughs) it's just like, remember back when we were saying we shouldn't be pretending that things were normal and that maybe this would be a good time to like actually just do things differently. It'd be, it'd be nice if they did that rather than what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. I, and I just can't imagine a world, like I imagine being a professor um, and being told, Oh no, you got to teach a class. Oh yeah. (laughs) In person. I'd be like, fuck you. I wouldn't do, (laughs) I would not do it. Um, and so I, you know, I just think that a number of these higher ed, uh, which is American language, uh, <laughs> post-secondary institutions really need to um, just do what's right by their employees and their students. Um, but also, I mean, at the border, like for people who uh, are now, you know, I'm sure there are people who are in the States who have a lot of their stuff in Canada still, who are maybe in the States to visit, um, expecting to go back. Um, you know, like it's it's uh, being a student is really weird and uh, an international student weirder and <laughs> kind of uh, belies why borders are are weird. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about students a little bit more as we kind of go into uh, some of the fallout from we this week. But that's not going to be our main topic. No, no. And the the topic is related to actually all of these issues. And so what we will be talking about today is will the pandemic finally be what brings down the mainstream media in Canada? And where are the emerging <laughs> nodes? You made it. You made it sound like 
hopeful. Like that's something that you want. Will the pandemic <laughs> finally be the thing that why would you say it like that? <laughs> well, like they're not really serving uh, their purpose anymore. And they're taking up space from people who are really smart and should be doing that work for them. Uh, and it, reform doesn't seem possible. And so maybe it actually does need to fall apart and be replaced. But we'll, we'll, ta- we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. I'm sure there are people to thank for us, though. Oh, we have so many people to thank. So thanks so much if you uh, are a new supporter or if you changed your pledge in the past week. Um, And that includes Bree, Alexandra, Jason, Janess, Gomar, Alex, David, Colin, Anna, Darcy, Kate, Nina, Scout, Jordan, uh, a name I cannot read because it's in different characters, but I'm seeing you. <laughs> Haley, Jenny, Barbara, Bacchus, Lorna, Emma, Frederick, Lavanna, Valerie, Rebecca, and Nadia. Thank you so, so much for your support of the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so we. This. <laughs> I, I mean, this scandal is so uh, ridiculous. And I think that the Canadian media, I mean, I think generally there's been some really good reporting on what's happening with we, but there's been a couple of really big holes that haven't been reported very well. And one is the big hole of, uh, okay, so what the fuck was this charity doing um, to people overseas and how um, were they affected? I think that you know, if there's a lot, so much sketchy shit going on in house, let me tell you how that probably means there's a lot of sketchy shit going on uh, across the border where they were doing across the borders where they were doing work. Um, and because Canada generally doesn't care about those people because they're darker, blacker, maybe we uh, don't do the same sort of scrutiny, but. That is, I think, dangerous, and we should know about those things. And the other big hole is, like, the big fallout of all of this, like, the people who are being hurt here are students. (laughs) And it's like, you know, students who weren't eligible for the CERB then got this, this, this volunteer, oh, actually, it is a violation of uh, a paid labor kind of weird liberal scheme uh, thing that was supposed to be administered by we and now is not going to be administered by we. The government hasn't announced another plan to administer it yet. And there hasn't been a lot of discussion about how this whole thing just furthers um, the impoverishment that a lot of students, I am sure, find themselves in in this time of pandemic. And I think that that story also needs to be told. The students can't be forgotten. There are so many people who are affected by this um, uh, across the country. And uh, what a colossal failure Uh, from the government. And it just goes to show there was no reason uh, to put students on some sort of different program. Student rent is not cheaper than regular people rent. It's all the same, (laughs) y'all. Well, sometimes it's even more expensive because residence is not um, really (laughs) market-based pricing. Um, Yeah, the the, the real story about we, I think we probably agree, is, is not is not the scandals that have broken in the last couple of, of months. It's that they have normalized a kind of charity that is racist and 
and obviously extremely sketchy, uh, possibly corrupt, uh, and that they have had access to hundreds of thousands of school children in this country. Uh, they've, they've created their own curriculum. They have special status for certain teachers. Kids went to their pep rallies. And and until uh, the reporting from Canada Land helped to break open some of the internal kind of weirdnesses with this organization, then, and of course, the mis- misstep of doing this stuff publicly and handing them a billion-dollar contract, uh, th- before all of that, no one really was like, hey, this 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 all seems very fucking bizarre. Uh, and, you know, there were times where some people would, would, would maybe identify, like, at a wee event that they were uncomfortable. There's a really outstanding piece by Jaron Kerr at Canada Land on um, we and media and what they would do to try and, like, go after people who had negative things to say about we day. And so there's there's probably a reason for why uh, like negative coverage has been so thin one of those reasons being that so much of the mainstream media is actually like a media partner with we or publishes the Kielberger columns which are like really boring and another good example of why the post media chain is just such shit um and you know but but we're not actually talking about the core issue with this charity which is like yeah what were they doing like i it seems to me that they were a travel agency for the rich to kenya like that seems like the most significant thing that they have been doing was getting rich canadians to go to kenya for some reason i mean i haven't even seen why they were going <laughs> it does seem like that's a big piece of it and then the other thing is like this weird uh, kind of real estate holding company thing. I mean, I know I know a lot of people who, um, you know, who've worked uh, with not for profits or on a corporate corporate board or something like that knows that you, sometimes that is something that happens that you will have another uh, company hold assets or whatever. But it actually like in this particular case and the timing that everything happened in. I actually don't think that that argument makes any sense. The timing that everything happened in uh, this all happening so late when they have so much real estate uh, says to me that there's like some really uh, weird stuff going on with the We Charities money and they didn't want uh, their real estate uh, to be uh, uh, up for grabs. They didn't want uh, their real estate to be caught up in all of the liability once things um, went shitty and the government contracting with that organization and not the actual weed charity is also very strange. <laughs> totally. um, uh, all of that is, is very bizarre. And like, I think it's good that we have that kind of reporting coming out, but yeah, you're right. There's just so much that's lost in the rest of it. And, and I do want to say, I made this tweet recently this, this week, um, talking about how the city of Toronto, uh, well, Jaron Kerr tweeted that the city of Toronto, um, had committed ten somewhere above ten million dollars to make improvements on this uh, this real estate property held by the Kielbergers' uh, parents um, uh, in order to like put some sort of um, service in in the property. And then I I like retweeted it and also uh, wrote you know the the city of Toronto has also committed one point two million dollars. Uh, to, to black arts, cultural and economic. So like not specific at all, just black organizations, um, which is just like such a joke, you know, like I think some people were retweeting it like, yeah, great start. And I'm like, no, you guys, I was like retweeting <laughs> this because I'm making it a comparison. The government is, 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 
um, giving $10 million to capital um, improvements on a property owned by a private person, owned by the Kielbergers, $10 million. 10 million and in order to support black communities is like here's one point that's like that's like nothing you like are you going to support one black organization with that 1.2 million dollars that's the only way that it makes sense (laughs) i just don't understand uh how that makes sense but it also speaks to the types of relationships that the keelbergers have built with government actors all over the place that protects them doing the kind of shady business that they're doing well, yeah, I think it was also Jaren's reporting that showed that uh, John Tory was at one of the Kilberger weddings. It's like, yeah, normal stuff, you know, whose mayor wasn't at their wedding. <laughs> um, and that J- John Tory's sister, Jennifer Tory, is on one of their boards, one of the boards for we. So, I mean, the connections are all very deep and the reporting is great. But let's try to keep our eye on on these kinds of sketchy dealings. Uh, the gentrification of uh, of the community that uh, that the properties are owned in. It's in Regent Park in Toronto, which is a low income neighborhood. That's also, I think, very important to, to remember and to to look more into the role that they played in in transforming that community from being low income to being gentrified. Anyway, this episode is not about we, and so I think that we have weed enough. <laughs> but we are talking about media you know so the way that the media for so long kind of missed this or refused to report on it I think is related to what we're talking about now which is is like we're in this global pandemic and what is happening to media in Canada this week we heard of how many people got laid off at global 70 70 people got laid off at global and um if the tweets are to be really to be believed and they should be without like a lot of notice like not people didn't know that this was coming and that is shocking and I mean as you tweeted about it's like um, we need news right now more than ever news that is parsed through that is well researched um, more than ever because it seems like as much as the time is droning on the information that we have about uh, this global health crisis seems to change all the time, every day, and the recommendations and where we're at risk and what's going to happen. And it's it's very disconcerting. It certainly um, elevates my anxiety levels, but it feels like I learn something new um, every week that may or may not be true because it, it appears as though um, even higher level officials can be confused by uh, the the changing um, landscape of how this is all affecting us globally. And so we need good news. And that's what we're getting, right, Nora? <laughs> I think that it is so interesting that um, that the what passes for coverage of the pandemic right now is basically rattling off what public health officials are saying. And, you know, mm-hmm. with very few exceptions, there are obviously a couple of journalists out there whose beat has been obviously turned into COVID and they are they are reporting and providing analysis. There are a couple of them. But we are a country of 37 million people uh, and, and a couple of journalists doing this work is not sufficient. And so I'm not denigrating their work. I know that whenever I complain about this online, there's journalists that say, but I'm doing such good work. And it's like, yes, there is some good work happening. 
What is not good work is global laying off 70 people. Vice has laid people off. There's been other layoffs announced throughout this uh, pandemic. And it's, it's you know, tied to the decreasing uh, avenue um, revenues from ad sales, right? Obviously, the pandemic has hit a lot of people really, really hard. But it, it doesn't make that much sense because if you look at the global layoffs, so they laid off most of their entertainment and lifestyle reporters. Those reporters tend to be younger. Uh, they tend to be racialized. <laughs> so like the yeah. look of, of global targeting these reporters for layoffs is not a good one. They were also mostly not union, um, which is a good reminder. Like if you're a media worker and you're in an ununionized environment, unionize your environment ASAP so that you have a couple of options if you do face layoffs. What is most striking to me is that the best journalism that is coming out on the the pandemic is coming from alternative sources. Um, like this entire we scandal was driven in large part by Canada Land, and you know a lot of people are frustrated. Canada Land, they, right. a lot of people hate Jesse Brown. Like, yeah, okay, sure, for sure. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things to hate about Canada Land, but uh, <laughs> there's no denying. I mean, I mean, Jaron and Jesse have been doing that work, and they laid the foundation for mainstream journalists to be able to carry that forward, and that has been really, really important. But if you look at the pandemic, and we've said this before, there are so many things missing in the coverage that it allows um, it allows for situation where the only news that we get is news that governments want us to hear, which is like so cliche to say. But here's an example of what I mean. So the pandemic is has differently affected racialized communities. The, we know that the majority of workers who have died in the healthcare industries have been black. These are not front of front of um, story. Uh, realities. The, the, the stories uh, in the last three weeks have focused on how young people partying are the ones driving the pandemic. And it is so pathetic because it's the it's the most convenient narrative. Young people partying, like who doesn't want to hate a young person partying? And that the, the infection rates are rising the fastest as a percentage of people who are 39 years of age and younger. As if those people are also like not like primarily primarily in workplaces with less labor protections where they're going to get infected, as if they're not people that have children. And so they've got more points of contact if their children are in daycare or if their children are in day camp. Um, and as if, you know, we haven't gotten the, 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 the virus under control in old, old uh, age facilities or residential care. And so like where the deaths and the infections were skewing to older populations at the start of the pandemic, the fact that younger people are making up a larger percentage of the infected is actually good news <laughs> because it means that older people are no longer making up a, a significant or larger portion of that percentage. But we're not hearing it reported like this. It's just like doom and doom and doom. And when you talk about something like partying, it's so convenient because Doug Ford or Francois Legault can just be like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Oh, and you know what? We're just going to open um, the, uh, the or we're going to lift the number of, of people that can get together for an event to 250, which is what the uh, Quebec government has done. So as of August 1st, event of 250 will be allowed well yeah i think you're making like such a crucial point because okay there's the thing that's making me laugh about what you're saying is that the idea that people 39 and younger are young people i know that's also funny it's like what i mean i know what they're trying they're trying to evoke this image of like a uh like an irresponsible teenager but like the I just, I mean, I've said this on the podcast before. When truly will I be considered an adult? It just feels like the definition of young person just keeps climbing the older I get, which is like cool, but like weird. Um, 
like the the demographic of 39 and and younger is uh i would say an unhelpful demographic but also <laughs> this is um largely a group of adults uh who are moving through the world and who are going to work who have lived in the most precarious time to get good um, and uh, sustainable work. Uh, these are people who work in the gig economy. These are people uh, who are still in school. These are the people who we're talking about, the people who are in your grocery stores um, uh, doing uh, the, the essential work uh, that has been deemed essential and need, need to continue to be there. That's that age group. And the government's line of this being irresponsible young people partying is actually a way to take responsibility off of their shoulders and put it on these individual shoulders when, quite frankly, there has always been lots that government can do to protect people. And there is still lots that government can do to protect people. But if everybody else thinks that it's actually not the government's fault and there's nothing the government can do, and in fact, it is these irresponsible 39 and unders <laughs> who are just living life willy-nilly, not caring about themselves, then there's less pressure on them to do anything. And that's why it is so dangerous uh, for media to just parrot out uh, whatever the government is saying, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it's so lazy. I mean, like, you know, you can look pretty quickly to see that the, you know, the new infections in Ottawa, uh, public health is like, this is being driven by house parties and workplaces. Uh, the infections in <laughs> Windsor, Essex, part, part, people are partying and then in the workplaces. Like, it's like, sorry, what was that other thing you just said? You know what? I'll just go to the Windsor, Windsor Essex um, public health website and see, oh, there's 10 active workplace infections on right now. Okay, that's good. That's a useful thing to know. Ten. <laughs> and that means actually then at least 20 infections are tied to a workplace because there has to be two people within a workplace before you declare it uh, an outbreak. Mm -hmm. And 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 so this is this is really easy stuff. There's other things too like Alberta consistently uh media just doesn't say where deaths happen. Uh, so I'll have to, like, go to multiple news sources to see, oh, it was reported. They just chose not to name where it was or they're not choosing to name who owns the facility or if the facility is public or if it's private. Uh, British Columbia, they, they actually don't uh, say where the infections are. They just kind of say, oh, it was in this region. And then there's no follow up. You have to wait for a couple of days to see if someone will indicate that the that the death was related to an outbreak at this facility or not. And so you're just like playing this weird waiting game where, I mean, I'm on top of it because I'm following this still every single night since April. Um, but average people aren't because you're not looking at it with any kind of of like temporal depth, you're literally looking at today's numbers. And then again, it's today's numbers. And then again, it's today's numbers. Like as if I know we all feel like we're living in Groundhog Day and we fucking are, right? <laughs> yeah. And so journalists have a responsibility to do this. But how in the fuck can they do this if there's not enough of them, if they're all expected to also report on a whole bunch of other stuff? And if the media is self-immolating, which is what I would say Global News just did with its layoffs, is self-immolating. Like, they they canceled the most popular daily news podcast in Canada. Yeah, I did see those tweets um, talking about how, wait, there, there's more is uh, has been canceled. And that just seems 
so like such a weird decision, but also like, um, even as you're mentioning, you know, that this is a lot of lifestyle and entertainment news. I just, you know, people may think to themselves, oh, well, yeah, it's a, it's a global, it's a unprecedented global pandemic. Like money's tight. Like this is a tough time. Like if there was anything to go, it should be those things. I actually think that that type of reporting right now is of crucial importance because I think we're going to need to um, track and understand in more than just an, uh, an academic way, in a like in a reporting way, how our lifestyles are changing. Like I, I want to know what is happening with those students right now and where those students are going to be, if they're even going to be students uh, in eight months, you know, and that's kind of a, it's a news story. It's also a lifestyle story. I want to know how our entertainment is changing. I want to know what happens to the art sector that was already um, so poorly funded and that has already been uh, so poorly reported on. Um, I want to know what happens to our artists. I want to know what happens uh, to our athletes also um, who don't get a lot of funding. I, I just, you know, like I think that that reporting is uh, of crucial and vital importance and it will help us um, to create uh, hopefully a better plan for next time, which, you know, <laughs> apparently we had a plan that the, anyway, that's a whole other story, but, um, it, it will hopefully help us to create a better plan in the event that anything like this, uh, comes back around. I think that those things are crucially important and it's not just about parroting numbers and being, um, the PR machine of the government. No, not at all. Um, The reason why I set this up at the start of the episode is saying that I think that this is like the death knell of mainstream journalism is because it's very clear that mainstream journalism cannot happen in the way that has been structured in this country for decades and decades anymore. I mean, we know that that's been that's been going on for years and years. We know that that news is in crisis. But when the news industry cannot rise to a crisis because it doesn't have any money to report What's the point of it existing anymore? And, and you know, the, the whole money argument also is pretty thin. Like, if you're going to make money right now, it's going to be off of your lifestyle and entertainment reporting. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you know, looking at um, this, the, the podcast of Wait, uh, Wait, There's More, like you have... You have the most popular daily news podcast in Canada, and it's run by two people, Tamara Kandekar and Rachel Brown. And so that's two salaries. And you're like, yeah, we can't figure out a way to monetize this podcast to pay for these two. It's like, I'm sorry, are you fucked? Like, there's a ton of ways to monetize that to make sure that you're actually bringing in advertisement revenue, even during a pandemic. But it's clear that the priorities of the corporation, uh, they just don't get where average people are at right now. They don't get where income sources can be expanded. They don't get how you can fund news and how and what you know how to translate something that's popular into something that will actually pay for itself. And I think that this is all part of a of a far greater problem within the logic of mainstream media. And journalists, I mean, a lot of journalists don't fall into this trap themselves, which is like, 
oh, well, we need our bread and butter, which is subscriptions. We need to be pushing subscriptions and people need to be subscribing and this kind of thing. As if subscriptions have like made up a significant portion of, of revenue like in the last 20 years. I mean, most revenue comes from advertising, uh, which has also jumped off of a cliff because of the Internet. And and so it's really it's an amazing moment where the smartest comment, the smartest uh, journalists are the ones losing their jobs. The most popular journalists are the ones losing their jobs uh, while the, the, the industry protects the worst, the most lazy, um, the most boring. And and thinking about like how um, consensus is changed within society. I mean, it is pretty remarkable to see movements emerging that are changing public opinion and journalists not really being there, that newspapers certainly not be being there, right? So an Ipsos poll just came out saying that 51% of Canadians uh, support defunding the police. And when you look at... You wouldn't know it by how quiet the politicians are, but I digress. But that's actually a really critical point, right? It's like journalists or the media. I mean, when I say journalists, usually I mean the decisions made for journalists, so like of their of their editors or of management. They are obviously completely out of touch. And then it, then if you look at under 38, the people who are all partying all the time and getting COVID, uh, it's... Uh, They're not reading the news. And not reading the news. <laughs> They're the ones that overwhelmingly support defunding the police. And so there's this incredible, like incredible moment of 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 change of change of of rupture i guess you would say in french uh between like an old world and a new world and the battle for ideas is like on right now and what i find so amazing is it is that the battle of ideas like we actually don't have a battle of ideas raging in the mainstream press that's a complete status quo Mm -hmm. that battle of ideas is happening completely removed from the mainstream press. And as it continues to degenerate and atrophy, I'm so excited to see what is going to come uh, out of the ashes and replace these establishment voices. Uh, it just seems like an incredibly interesting moment. But the, of course, downside of it all is like, how are we documenting this pandemic? How do we understand this pandemic or other news? My God, like, as I say, like, where is the where are all of the pro defunding the police mainstream columns if this is such a popular idea? Like, it just is like so clear that they're completely out of touch with with average people. Well, it seems like it's it's a lot of what we've talked about uh, previously on the podcast. It's like, you know, the mainstream press is so white. Right. And it is so wealthy. Like it is it is uh, driven by um, the elites of this place. And um, that's why it's irrelevant <laughs> right now. That's not that's <laughs> not what's uh, the most generative um, when it comes to culture, when it comes to this battlefield of ideas that you're talking about. Like none of that stuff is really touching the elites in the same way. So they don't think it's relevant. But guess what? There are people who are creating their own media, you know, you and I included. And so um, many people have decided that they are not going to engage um, in the mainstream media landscape because of all of the kind of uh, racism, anti-blackness, um, you know, uh, constraints that they experience there that prevent them from reporting on news that really does matter to uh, a broader uh 
section of our society that is really more relevant to what is happening culturally right now um, in our society. And they've either opted to leave, which is our loss, or to create their own media, which is our gain. And so, uh, you know, perhaps it's not the worst thing for the mainstream media to, you know, be experiencing um, uh, what seems like some sort of uh, catastrophic failure right now because it, it <laughs> gives it gives space uh, to other people's uh, self-created media um, to grow. I mean, you know, sometimes I think about this podcast, uh, our podcast, like we don't want <laughs> anything from this really. Like we, <laughs> we, you know, this was mostly a way for us to keep in touch <laughs> when Nora moved out of <laughs> Toronto and we just decided to have fun with it. But it has been um, so successful beyond our wildest dreams, but nobody has ever contacted us to be like, Hey, um, What's going on with this? Which you'd think would happen um, in a, in a media landscape where someone's like, "Oh, look, there's something really uh, interesting going on over there. They're talking about this. Maybe we should uh, see if we can get in on that or support that in some way." But that has never, never happened. <laughs> and we're the number two news show in Canada. <laughs> what the fuck? You know, like that. Just you know, it, the fact that um, the elites can't see. What is relevant uh, to people? Um, it's like, okay, fine, then don't see it. You know, we'll create our own stuff and that will maybe be um, the way that people uh, get their news and get their analysis um, uh, in the future. I don't know. Well, will be. Oh, my God. Like the, the, the big danger of that elite disconnect with average people is that it is so crushing for civic engagement. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, civic engagement, like really down to like civil disobedience. And if you think of the history of newspapers, I mean, before the, the, the Second World War, like every single fucking political idea in the world had its own newspaper. Every single community had its own newspaper. People were publishing their ideas uh, to create like community and to give voice to the communities in which they they existed. They were doing that kind of work. And newspapers had to be collective uh pieces of, of, of current events and of, of history because it, it requires a lot of people to participate and you create this collective document. And, you know, we still have something like that now, except the Internet has made it so so individualized that rather than having collective community documentation, it's more like, you know, you've got a network of people on uh, on Instagram or you might have a, a, a blog network or a single blog that you like to check out. But that's not considered serious and it's not considered real media. But we forget that we actually came from a world where everyone had their fucking own newspaper at one point. But in the post-war period, the rise of the unbiased news organization, so unbiased, I mean, a, a news organization that would hide or obscure its political orientation, was is actually new, right? Most of our newspapers come from partisan politics. Like every one of our newspapers was born out of a partisan organ, born to be a partisan organ. And, and you know, the, the major old ones shifted to become unbiased reporting or whatever. And through sanitizing their bias, they were able to get to a location in Canadian in Canadian society where they are the neutral, 
often almost always white male voice of reason. And because of that, like we don't actually interact with with media like that as average people. And I think that as things continue to polarize and as the lies of the post-war period of liberalism has continued to show itself to be lies, uh, you know, you can find yourself in kind of two different places. Either you have found your alternative sources of, of, of media and you might consume it only or you might consume it alongside mainstream media or you feel completely disenfranchised and completely disattached from what's actually happening. And the, and the massive danger in that, and I think that a lot, probably a majority of people are in that situation. And, and that allows governments like the liberals to enjoy like very little criticism for really fucked up bad decisions that they have taken. And this past week, there were two big news stories. Haha, <laughs> thanks to the news, the folks doing investigations are just reporting on what's going on in the courts. We know that, um, that number one, the liberals who have been the biggest supporters of uh, bringing refugees to Canada, uh, who are also the biggest supporters of maintaining the third safe third country agreement, uh, had their had their hands slapped like crazy in a federal court where the federal court said that the safe third country agreement is against the charter. Yeah, it's against is the not constitutional. It's against um, the charter. It'll be interesting to see if they uh, appeal that. But yeah, I you know there were but at the time that the the Trudeau government was really doing this like intense PR to be like we are the the government that will support. Uh, migrants and and well they would never use that terminology but who will support uh, refugees uh, you know there were so many groups uh, on the ground who were saying like uh, th- what about this <laughs> uh, safe third country agreement with the United States like hello um, so much of uh, our um, border make decision making has also been transferred over to the United States. Um, how could you possibly say this? This isn't true. Uh, but the media was doing so much of just, you know, copying those press releases and parroting out those very yep. same lines that the government were saying. And this government, I think we got to know by now. I mean, it's it's taken some time, but even the mainstream press is reporting this says a lot of shit that they do not do, that their actions um, do not, um, uh, do not, uh, like they say a lot of shit that they're, and don't have a lot of follow through through their actions. And in fact, um, their actions are completely hypocritical to the way that they present themselves. And wouldn't it have been nice for us to know that (laughs) years ago? Shouldn't we have known like the evidence was there and it could have been reported on far more effectively before. But the media machine is just so has been uh, so eager uh, to just ignore all of the difficult news and just do the easy thing, which is to 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 parrot out that Canada is great and in fact better than the U.S., which is just the line all the friggin' time. Um, but it is to our detriment and and to the danger, actually, of a lot of people um, in Canada and people who tried to cross the border at the time to escape some of the, the draconian policies that Trump was putting through, thinking that they would be safer in Canada only to end up detained and deported. Um, it's like the, the consequence to these things um, is significant. And 
you know, for so many people can't afford to have like such a stupid uh, approach uh, to the news. Um, and so maybe this is a good thing. Maybe it was good the way that you phrased it, <laughs> that, that, you know, uh, mainstream media is, 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 <laughs> but you know, it's just, it's also just depressing. It's like, oh God, how could you, how could you just lay off all of yeah. these people? And, you know, like part of that also is just the way that our media organizations are set up to be like these like really intense um, uh, capitalist corporations where it's just about the bottom line. They should be running deficits right now. They should not be thinking about how to maximize profits. This is, yeah. it's not just um, like some sort of a money-making company. This is a service. We need news. We need to understand what is happening in our world. We need it to be analyzed. And my God, like, you should be yes you should be losing money right now because that's what makes sense to do in a pandemic um the other story that you were talking about i assume is the one um that came, <laughs> that uh, we were kind of referring to um uh this morning it's sunday uh that came out in the globe and mail yes i just want to say one more thing about the third uh, safe country agreement um like we had so much coverage of what racists were saying about Roxham Road in the mainstream press. We heard so much about Michelle Rempel being a shithead, so much about Maxime Bernier being a shithead and all of their racist rhetoric. And you have to ask yourself if if a federal court found that piece of legislation was against the Constitution, all it would have taken for a journalist with a little bit of critical thought would have been to read the agreement, say, hmm, I wonder if this would stand up to a court challenge, because it pretty much seems like deporting people to the United States would not. And you can actually pull on that thread and do some reporting on what are the odds that this would actually be considered constitutional. No, instead, we had the racist frame dominate. And then anyone that questioned whether or not the safe third country agreement uh, should exist was kind of relegated to like very minor comment. You know, the NDP very much did try to make the th- uh, to make the, the discussion about why we need to scrap the agreement. So I just want folks to like think about that and think about how different the coverage would have been from 2015 to 2019 on the issue of, of migrants mm-hmm. trying to come to Canada. The second story that I wanted to highlight, it was a, a massive investigation uh, that appeared in the Saturday Globe and Mail on Canada's early warning pandemic system that the Liberals quietly restructured out of existence in May 2019. <laughs> I mean... And and not just... Sorry, like, I just want to put a finer point on it because I also read this this morning and, uh, wow, what a story. People should read it. Um, not just uh, Canada's early warning system. It is it is a early warning system for the world that is located and paid for by Canada, but it also, you know, like is is part of whose infrastructure? Of whose infrastructure? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, so, well, it's part of <laughs> the World Health Organization's <laughs> in- infrastructure. <laughs> um, right. No, exactly. That's such an important point. So, so for for more than like since before 1998, Canada had a team of of doctors and epidemiologists who had a very sophisticated system 
system of monitoring things happening around the world where they could identify potential pandemic threats. Uh, you know, anything from a, a, a reported number of mysterious illnesses in this part of the world or a reported number of mysterious dead animals in this part of the world, or even people um, buying more bleach as being an indication that maybe they're trying to deal with something that they don't know how to deal with. And that was the early warning of uh, the H1N1 outbreak. So this little group within Public Health uh, Canada, you know, cost about $2.5 million to operate. And the Liberals were like, no, nah, we don't we don't really need you to do international work. What we need you to do is is different work and look at Canadian uh, illnesses. And the, the reason why I want to talk about it in the context of the mainstream media, like being destroyed, because it might seem counterintuitive, because this is a mainstream media report that was really, really important. I am afraid that a report like this, which really should help define how we're talking about blame and figuring out how to move forward as a country, is going to be relegated as being anti-liberal, anti-Trudeau kind of claptrap that most other media outlets will not pick up on, that this will not be a report that changes how we think about how this pandemic started in Canada. And that goes back to the problem that so many media organizations have, which is that they just will not allow their journalists to give anything depth that they will not connect those dots between a decision made by the Trudeau government in last year in May to our early warning systems not not working in the beginning of, 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 of 2020 to, I mean, part of the article was about how liberal bureaucrats, I shouldn't say liberal bureaucrats, bureaucrats in management, let's say, uh, were not even allowing full reports to make it up the chain of command. So top level officials were not getting the full warnings that the that the doctors and scientists were making. I mean, it's just such a massive systems failure. And I feel like every week the globe has some massive report that is really interesting and important. And it just vanishes into the ether because the bosses know that people's attention spans are short. They know that the conservatives are just as bad. And the conservatives also did similar kind of cuts or they made massive cuts to public health uh, Canada and had other problems with how they managed pandemics. And then they just hope that cynicism will just take over and that there's going to be no way to actually understand this investigation in a broader context. And I mean, the proof is there because there is no broader context being given to fucking anything. I mean, Christ, the Ontario government, Ministry of Health, has reported three additional worker deaths, one on June 13th, one on June, I believe, 21st, and one on July, uh, recently, July 17th or something. And there is no journalist that has written about these things, not fucking one to figure out, are these old names that we that were publicly re- released, that were confirmed? Are they new people? Who are these people that have died? Not one. Nor has anyone uh, reported the difference between that number eight and the number 10, which is the number that you can actually, like I have, figured out as how many people have died in Ontario just by doing a straight accounting of what has been publicly reported. It's like... What are you people fucking doing? Like, where are your resources going right now? And how are we fucking this up in a moment where we absolutely do not have the luxury of fucking things up? Um, If you're a journalist who's listening to this being like, yes, yes, like, and I know the answer to these questions. Can you just like tell us? (laughs) Just We're actually (laughs) like, we actually want to know, like, where, what is happening that is uh, contributing? Like, can we, can we pinpoint the system failures um, beyond what we've already um, surmised beyond what we've already, yeah, surmised and you know pointed out over the years of this podcast being in existence. <laughs> um, but it would be interesting to get um, some clarity 
uh, from an insider perspective. So if you're listening, just let us know. We will protect your identity in a massive way. Do not worry about that. <laughs> so the future, Sandy, what do you think? Sandy and Nora Network of, uh, of investigative reporting? <laughs> what, we like actually hire staff or something? Yeah. That'd be hilarious. Um, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think, I think the future um, is actually kind of exciting at the same time that it's very depressing, right? Like, it's like uh, th- all, the, all the new news... Um, the new uh, formats, uh, the 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 innovative things that people are doing to create their own news uh, is exciting because it means that you know we're we're we are refusing um, the uh, the way that news is telling us we we need to that the mainstream media is telling us that we need to consume news and creating new things that are relevant uh for our society i think at some point it will settle into something um that is normative for sure as all things do Um, but right now like this like generative moment uh is really exciting and i just hope there is enough support uh for all the different exciting things that people are doing out there because uh it deserves support and it deserves to grow and i'm excited for it 